This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. What's the trillion dollar idea that so few people see coming, but yet it will revolutionize every business and every consumer experience? How will the opportunities emerge? How will the new kids on the block displace the 100-year-old monopolies that currently dominate the space? To answer those questions and more, Bill Nussie. Bill, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, uh, Joel. It's great to be here. Exciting <laughs> so, topics. Exciting topics. This is uh, this is a cool one. I mean, in, in the pre-show stuff that we're doing, uh, I, I'm excited about this discussion. So, what is the uh, what's the trillion dollar industry? What are we What are we talking about? If you look at all energy, like oil, gas, electricity, power companies, it's about six trillion dollars a year across the world, which makes it arguably the largest industry on the planet Earth. Uh, and it's always been the province of these giant industrial policy heavy uh, billion dollar businesses like oil and gas, particularly electric utilities. And the crazy thing nobody sees coming is that these small scale systems like rooftop solar, microgrids, solar and battery, coupled with electric vehicles, this is actually going to do to the uh, electricity industry and the overall energy industry exactly what PCs and smartphones did to mainframes. Exact same impact. It's going to revolutionize it, turn it upside down, and create incredible opportunities for entrepreneurs and innovators. So are you talking about decentralizing? Is that is that kind of what's yes, happening? Yes, exactly. Break up, the, break up the infrastructure, decentralize it so that a few giant players don't control this anymore? Absolutely. It's uh, it, it's the same way. If you go to if you went if you logged onto a computer system in the cloud fifty years ago, you're hitting a mainframe. You log into the computer system in the cloud today, you're hitting millions and millions of small computers run by Google, and that's accessed by a computer in your lap on your laptop or in your pocket with your smartphone. That same kind of technology disruption that caused us to move from big, old-fashioned centralized systems to small, quick, cheap systems is taking place in energy. Thing is, nobody sees it coming. Uh, because they haven't done the numbers. So, so these electric cars, I mean, are ultimately going to make that big of a difference at uh, some point, uh, sometime in the near future. It's going to be absolutely dramatic, you know. And a lot of people come at this from the climate change point of view, and that's that's a very important point of view. But to me, this is a business. This is a business opportunity. Uh, you know, we're going to be two, three, four years from now. Electric cars are going to be across the board cheaper. Uh, I don't know if you or any of your listeners own an electric car, but the maintenance on these things are nothing. They last for 10 years. Uh, you don't need to put oil in them. They just run. Uh, so the whole economics of this small-scale local system, this distributed system, is a complete change from what we've had for 100 years. And electric vehicles plug into your house or to your office. Turns out those batteries in your car now are in service of your house, in service of your office. They become part of this gigantic... Uh, virtual power plant, virtual grid. Uh, and it's you can think about like what Google did to to uh, you know dictionaries, right? It just changes everything. So I, I mean, you know, we're not really talking about um, the green side of this because the green side of this, you could make an argument that an electric car is not really all that much better than an oil car from from a from a energy carbon footprint point of view. Would that be right or not not close? That's uh, that might have been the case ten years ago. Uh, I deal with this 
all the time, Joel. There's a, there's a whole chapter in this book I wrote called Freeing Energy about debunking myths. And I, I did this crazy thing that no one had ever done before. I actually went and, did, and, and looked at government websites and did math. And I present the math and I have links in the book to the like spreadsheets. You can go on my site and type in, look at the spreadsheet and type in your own numbers to see what you like. But yeah, the, the fact is that the CO2 total lifetime CO2 footprint of electric cars is now way below that of a gasoline well, uh, car. So, so here's, here's the part that I'm talking about. And, and if you've done the math, I'd, I'd like you just to kind of, kind of spread it out here for us. But, you know, uh, what I've heard is that, you know, charging the car, uh, you know, you still have to produce electricity. Electricity takes oil. So you still need the fundamental, uh, you know, energy production that you have now. So you're really, instead of it being a direct expense, it's become an indirect expense. Not at all. Not at all. Not so, at all. so would no. you straighten that out? Because that's what I've always kind of heard. And uh, let me give you the most extreme example. Yeah, please. Uh, but there's many. The, the overall simple answer is that an, a gasoline engine is only 25% efficient. So whatever energy might be in the oil, you're going to lose 75% of it to the heat. Uh, whereas an electric motor converts 95% of the energy and electricity to motion. But here's a really simple, tangible way to look at it. If you take an, uh, you know, a lot of the gasoline we burn in our cars today. Uh, is uh, grown as corn ethanol. And so about 10% of the uh, electricity, uh, the gasoline in your cars from ethanol grown from corn somewhere in the Midwest. So take that, take a acre of land in Iowa. And uh, if you grow corn on it and you convert it to ethanol and then you drive a car with it ethanol. So it goes X number of miles on a, an acre's worth of corn in Iowa. You take, so that's one thing. You take a second, second acre right next to it, you put solar panels on it. And you use those solar panels to charge an electric car. And then electric car then drives a certain number of miles. Uh, this is all on my website. It's all in my book. The, I've had experts look at it. There's no baloney here. I've been a professional analyst strategist. Uh, the car that's driven by an acre of solar panels in Iowa will go 70 times, seven zero times farther than a car, uh, a gasoline-powered car powered by an acre of corn grown on um, in the same uh, the next acre in Iowa. They are electric cars are so much more efficient. Electricity as an energy carrier is so much more efficient. All right, so this just, is just, I don't want to stay on this topic too long, but but what about the batteries of the car? Bad for the society. There, there are. I mean, what what about the solar panels? Take all this kind of technology that that's hard to mine, or what is that? Is that all baloney too, or is that uh, is there something? Hey, too listen. Long? Anytime you're going to make something, you're going to have to mine. You're going to have to make it. So every single thing we do is going to take a little bit of environmental impact. But you're talking about orders of magnitude difference. Uh, just because making a solar panel or battery has an environmental impact doesn't mean that it's anywhere near a hundred times as bad as what it is to remove oil and gas from the ground. So, okay. so it, it, it is better. Uh, it does have an impact, but it's a much, much smaller impact. Okay. So listen, so, so now we debunk the myths. Now we can be open-minded about maybe some new ideas. I, I, I had to kind of get that off my chest. Yeah. Because, because it always happens, Joel, always. always kind of slow me down, you know, may make yeah. me think, well, maybe we're not going in the right direction. All right. So, so you're saying that electric cars, uh, rooftop panels, solar farms, you know, are, are going to be able to deliver us enough energy, uh, maybe renewable energy from the sun and other places uh, that we're going to be able to wean off of our dependence from oil. Is that what you're saying? Oil, coal, and natural gas. I'm saying absolutely. And here's the really cool part for people that read uh, Freeing Energy or listen to my podcast. We as much as it's frustrating for some of the folks that want this to happen fast and they look at Washington DC and they just, they get frustrated because it's not happening very quickly. 
they're missing the other, they're missing the same point that the people that want to keep it the same, the incumbents want, which is that economics are going to force this change. It is just so much cheaper and it's getting cheaper every year to use solar wind and batteries than it is to do anything else that at some point in the next couple of years, within this decade, people are going to just sort of give up and say, geez, let's just do this clean stuff. Who cares if it's clean? We're just going to save a ton of money. It's more efficient. It's more resilient. Uh, it really isn't a question of policy or laws. Economics are going to take over. Just you know, like I'll, I'll tell you, I, 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 I've always thought that the green thing is kind of a superfluous argument. It's not really the argument that's going to really cause the change. Yes. I've always thought it was economic. Yes. But yes. I think that recently we've learned something new. And the something new it, with this Russian conflict that we're in the middle of is that when we buy oil from countries we don't get along well with, we are empowering those countries to turn their weapons against yes, us. Absolutely. And, and it, it surprises me that the United States government hasn't worked harder to fund some of these initiatives to get us off international supplies of oil, foreign domestic, you know, whatever the issues are, get us off of these kinds of things. Uh, I mean, the, the government doesn't seem to be too much in favor of uh, these oil companies anyway. The oil companies are kind of starting to wean themselves off of oil anyway. They know where this is going. Yeah, they know where and it's they, going. And they want to kind of control these new these new plays. So how does that look? I mean, is the government going to going to try to encourage this? I mean, I mean, is that is the is the policy talk kind of taking any 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 footing here? You know, the problem with the U.S. government more than other governments, hey, listen, I love America, right? But the problem with the U.S. government is that every four years, you're going to have a completely different set of views on what to do. So it creates this huge pendulum swing in businesses, which is what I'm all about. They struggle, right? They want to make decisions. They don't have a framework, uh, long-term bets. And, and it's different in Asia and Europe. And so they're leaning into this stuff, just like they did with telecom. You know, the governments aren't quite as reactive as the United States. But but listen, you talk about oil, the thing that I learned in my research that, that surprised me, uh, there's a Pentagon report that came out maybe 10 years ago. And it basically said that something like 30 to 40% of all the money that the U.S. spends in military is to protect the shipping lanes from oil deliveries from all over the world. So as soon as we start generating our own solar wind battery, or heck, just pull all the natural gas and oil out of our own ground here, which we actually have the capacity to do, uh, we can we can spend our money in other areas. Uh, we don't need to be uh, sending young men and women out to putting their lives at risk all over the planet to protect oil lanes between countries, some of which we don't even like. So it's, yeah, it's nothing you know, good you know, that comes of, from part this. Of the, uh, part of the issue is that if we change to a different kind of a energy system, then all those people that are protecting all those shipping lanes and doing all that <laughs> other stuff lose those jobs. And then what are we going to do with those people? We've kind of built a whole economy around those people. Yeah. Yeah. So it just, it, it's a, uh, it's very disruptive. I mean, what you're talking about has enormous uh, implications. So what's the impact if, um, if we change systems from, from what you're talking about now into something else, who's, who wins, who loses? That's who are some of the weird question. That's a great question. You know, the losers are the incumbents, the ones that have spent a century uh, babysitting this, business model of regulated monopolies, right? These are the folks, good companies doing good work. They've electrified the country. It's well, let's, let's talk about specifically. So we're not just talking about oil companies like Mobile and Shell and these, these big oil companies, the refineries. You're talking about the companies that run the grids too, like yes, inside yes, domestically. All of, them, all of them. And most of the work in, in freeing energy is around the utilities. It does talk, we have a chapter on oil and gas because vehicles and transportation are moving away from 
you know, fossil fuels towards electricity. That's so they're threatened, but their that threat is slower and it will take longer. The threat to electric utilities, um, in some sense, they're hey, hey, listen, let's replace the coal uh, coal plants with uh, wind and solar. That's uh, Georgia Power, where I live, just announced they're shutting down all but one coal plant by uh, the end of this decade. Right, that's big news. Um, so obviously. 50,000 people that are uh, mining coal in the United States. Uh, that's a problem. Got to take care of those folks. There's a lot of options. Um, but there's 250,000 people in the United States today full-time installing solar. So solar is a much, much larger industry in terms of jobs than solar. So in terms of total jobs, clean energy is way more way more interesting for job creation, for politicians that care about that, and for communities that care about that. But of course, if you have a West Virginia coal community, you can't just snap your fingers and turn that into a solar solar installation community. But it, it, the, the jobs are there. It's just going to take some disruption to switch them over. Yeah. Um, and, well, and also, uh, we, we've moved away from uh, from less educated jobs to more educated jobs, and, and the solar installations are probably more educated. No, jobs. they're not. These are these are blue collar jobs. These well, they, are people okay, that so, don't. That so have, could those you know, coal workers? So yeah, could they some could. of those coal workers learn to do this new work? There's dozens and dozens of stories coming out of West Virginia where this is happening all the time in other places in Appalachia. So yes, this is happening all the time. It's not a straight path. It's not an easy path. If you're a third generation coal miner, it's a tough, tough to get your head around installing solar, right? But um, the jobs are there, and uh, and and there's a, everyone I talk to in the solar industry, in the wind industry, is is scrambling to find people. Um, it's it's hard work. It's honest work. It's trade work. You know, the you need electricians and plumbers and all these other types of jobs. This isn't uh, this isn't scientists and rocket people. This is, you know, good old American elbow grease, which is one of the reasons I love this industry so much. Actually, that's that's a really good thing because that would uh, that would enable us to retrain some workers that are displaced, so they don't yes. have to be completely displaced and cast aside. Uh, they can be reengaged into something else. Yes, and there's many, many more jobs in uh, solar and wind than there are in, in any kind of fossil fuels. And as yeah. solar and wind grow, it's going to be even bigger. But the most exciting part, the disruptive part, which is what free energy is really about, is what we call the local scale. Right? You think about solar, everyone lumps it together. I've got a giant solar farm outside of uh, my town, you know, 200 acres, kind of an eyesore. Uh, then I've got uh, solar on my roof or on my church or on my uh, school or shopping mall. Now these are actually two different industries, and and people mis mistake the fact even in, inside of electricity they mistake the fact that these are two very different industries. And what my book talks about is how this small scale stuff, which I call local energy, is is actually the disruptor. It's actually where entrepreneurs and innovators and a lot of your listeners are going to want to pay attention because this is the first time in history where electricity is not regulated. It can be, it can be competitive. It can be innovative. People can go, you and I can get sit down in your garage there and we can invent something new and we can sell it because we can sell it to the store down the street. We can sell it to the school, to the church, to your town. Um, that's the first time in electricity history where anyone can be inventive that doesn't get stuck with the utilities regulated monopolies. Hmm. Are, are these, uh, is, is this kind of power generation uh, geographically limited? To places to get more sunshine. I mean, or no. does it work in lots of places? One of the most solar-powered places in the world is Germany, which is about the same uh, same degree of solar as we get in Vermont. So, uh, yeah, it, it works everywhere, and uh, and it's cool. Is you know, every single I think every eight hours, Joel, the enough solar energy from the sun hits the continents of the United States to power our entire civilization uh, for a year. 
but how are so much solar i i believe that the sun emits that much power but how how are human beings at capturing it and converting it storing it using it or all the things that they have to do i mean are we really good at it or are we still still working we're, we're really good at it where we stink is on the bureaucracy and red tape that's the part we stink at so think about this, right? When you put a solar on a building or or your house or my house, you're going to pay metric is about $3 a watt, okay? $3 a watt. So a typical system, 4,000 watts, 4K, as they call it. So $12,000. That's all in labor, equipment. You take that exact same 4K, 4,000 watt system with the same panels, the same inverter, someone's on the roof installing it. You take them down to Australia, it's going to cost them a buck 10 US per watt. So it's three times more expensive to install the identical hardware in the U.S. It's it's what they call soft costs in the industry uh, because it's all red tape and bureaucracy and paperwork and all kinds of other stuff. Australia said, screw it. Let's just make it easy. We'll make a federal law to streamline uh, installing solar anywhere in the country. Guess what? One in four people in Australia have solar on their roofs compared to like one in one in 50 in the United States. And, and, and is, is that because the United States is busy protecting the, the, the companies that pay money to the, the, the Congress people and so forth? I mean, is that our political system or what is it? You know, it's, it's partially because the uh, electric monopolies who are the largest lobbyists in the United States of any industry, larger than coal, oil and gas, larger than pharma, larger than financial services, they spend more a percentage of their revenue on lobbying than anybody else. That's part of the reason. Um, part of the reason is that I don't know if you've ever met a solar installer, but these these are small mom and pop companies all over the United States. They they don't they don't get together and you know and link arms and get stuff done uh, as a as a lobbying group as a voice. They're they're just not very good at it. Yeah, small company small companies that's not their strength. It isn't. It isn't. And yet they have this incredible voice. They have they have two hundred fifty thousand jobs in the United States, right there in every corner of every part of the United States. These people are working. Fantastic. And here's a cool thing: if you build a solar panel on your church or your house or whatever, um, ten to twenty percent of the money that you pay stays in your community. So think about it: if you if if your electric utility builds a giant solar farm twenty thirty miles outside of town. Um, very little of that money is going to show up in your community. But if you install it on your roof, your church, 20, 10 to 20% is going to go towards your schools, your children's schools, towards a fire department, towards a police department. So there's so much economic benefit for building these small systems for communities. Uh, and then you get into the whole sort of disadvantaged communities. You get resiliency and, and you know, really, it's a wonderful story that literally, Joel, nobody's talking about. That's why I spent four years of my life writing this book freeing energy because no one's talking about this and it's huge it's not just the let's, biggest let's, business opportunity it's let's it's a talk huge about the uh, efficiency of these like home units yeah I yeah mean, i've kind of heard that you know it costs 20 grand to install them and the break even is years i yeah. mean is that is that right or i mean is what should we expect to break even to be or are these going to become more efficient over time so we get a faster break even i mean what's 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 real here we don't need them to be more efficient because we just need all this bureaucracy to go away. So if it's three bucks a watt to install it, it'll take you where depending where you live and and things like that between four and seven years to pay it back. And and people kind of get frustrated by that, but think about what that actually means. I mean, you gotta you gotta stop for a second and think of what that payback period means. That means that over the course of let's call it five years, a round number. That you're not paying a dime more for to keep your house lit and your air conditioner running than you did before. 
And that means at the end of five years or whatever time is to pay it back, you now own that asset on your roof. And all the electricity generates, which could be anywhere between a third and 100% of what your house needs, is generated by something you own. That electricity becomes free. So your electric bill plummets. But at the end of uh, at the end of the five years, is the equipment still worth worth anything, or the you average have to replace life it because of, the next generation came out? The average life of a uh, solar panel is thirty two years. Even if the, there's a next generation, it doesn't lose efficiency. No, nope. well, I mean they use a, they lose about half a percent of efficiency every year, but uh, they're warranted for 30, 25, 30 years these days. So. Uh, not a problem. But why aren't why aren't new houses mandated to have these? I mean, I mean, they're mandating that cars go to electric. They're mandating that uh, you know people do uh, less watering and less utilization of these utilities. If this is such a great thing, back to the bureaucracy. Why don't they just say let's put them on the house and build it into the price of the house? It's Joe. I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb and say it's almost as if. One of the largest and most profitable industries in the United States, which is the largest lobbying industry in the United States, doesn't want this to happen. Just maybe. <laughs> maybe that has something to do with it. Uh, maybe has as much to do with it as uh, four years ago, it wasn't cheaper to put solar on your roof. It is now. This is a new thing. That's why I got into the space four years ago. Because 10 years ago, you do this because you put solar on your roof because you're an environmentalist. Uh, now you do it because you're going to save money. That's a big change, and it happened fast, and it's going to get even cheaper. So where's the where's the money here? If somebody wants to start investing in this because this is a new trillion-dollar deal, uh, where do you see the money? I would tell people, and listen, I'm not an expert on investing. Uh, you know, I've been a venture capitalist. I've been a CEO for most of my life, but don't take any advice from me on investing. That said, I will tell you what I think. I'll tell you what I do. Um uh, I would stay away from just general solar and wind because those are almost, if you don't look carefully, there's the giant solar farms. And all the profits from those uh, lower cost energy sources go to the utilities. Um, that's why the utilities love solar and wind because it helps make them more profitable. They're not taking your bills down, by the way. They're they're, they're taking that profit for them and their shareholders. So, so I look their, their generation costs go are down. lower when they, get yeah. the, when they get the energy this way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's why they don't want you to put it on your roof because all those profits go to you and your family and your community and your church and all those places. Uh, so, uh, the opportunities I look for are, uh, where there's the small scale stuff where you're talking about, uh, EV charging companies, um, uh, solar residential batteries, you know, Tesla is a good example, but they're so crazy and the prices are so up and down that it's not really a good bet for this. But if you looked at what Tesla does and you find companies that aren't as crazy and aren't as volatile, uh, you know, that said, I got a bunch of friends that have made a total fortune on Tesla, but I, it's too crazy for my taste. I'm a conservative investor. I like things that make sense and don't go, don't become memes. So then you look for things like Sunrun, and I'm not recommending them. I don't actually know the company. I don't know what their revenues or profits are, but they're a good example of uh, a, a company that puts uh, rooftop solar up. And there's a lot of companies like that in the US. And uh, those those companies, again, they go up and down because things are volatile. But in the long run, more and more people are going to want to put solar on their roof. And I also look for companies that own it's called DERs, Distributed Energy Resources. And there's a group of companies that are basically in that space, some of which are public, uh, that you can that are that are doing everything from EV charging to batteries to uh, uh, solar tracking, like Next Tracker, all kinds of different companies doing that. 
and by the way, there's also a couple of early hedge funds and ETFs that are doing all this hard work that are basically um, finding these early stage local energy companies that are publicly traded and letting you sort of buy them as baskets. So if you do some looking there, it's probably the simplest way to do it. But this is a trend that's uh, it's a juggernaut. It's very early, but it's a juggernaut. Yeah. So how long do you think it's going to take before we really uh, before we really notice? Is it ten uh, percent uh, or twenty percent market share uh, where the uh, the utilities really start feeling the pain? I think they're feeling it today. Uh, they're feeling it, but most people aren't aware of it. So uh, I'd say electric vehicles in 2022, 2023 are gaining widespread awareness. You know, it's no longer a what are you crazy for buying one of those? You're you're thinking now. Maybe I could save money. Maybe it's going to be as good as everyone says because ton of people. I see these cars everywhere now, and so I think we're two or three years down the road from where we'll have that same awareness for uh, rooftop solar and and uh, residential microgrids where you got a battery in your house. But you know the thing that's driving this is, and, and you talked about was my payback time, which a lot of people don't really get right because it's 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 you don't spend any more money. You're just how much longer till it's free, right? But but the bigger thing driving people is adopting is all these outages that are happening, right? Texas last winter, right? If 500 people died because of uh, the whole grid went down for four or five days, who would have thought Texas would have their grid go down for four or five days, right? Now everyone is watching Texas during the summer because it's going to be a miracle. Um, their grid has come within a quarter of a percent of going offline. Uh, this so far in the last two weeks, right? So people in Texas who follow this and understand how volatile is in California, right? Completely different state, completely different wiring, but they're also having their power grids go down all the time because of wildfires and the public, the utilities shutting down the grid in places because they don't want to start wildfires. So from Texas to California, two the most different places in the United States, people are buying these small scale systems for their houses. Not they don't give a crap about saving money. They want their they want their uh, power to stay on when the grid goes down. They want to be able to, you know, have the refrigerator continue to keep their food and sometimes their medicines and sometimes their medical equipment running. They want their kids to be able to zoom school, uh, whatever it is. Uh, they 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 work remotely. They have to be online. So for these these people are paying a slight premium, but they have guaranteed resiliency in their homes now. That's probably the biggest fastest thing uh, driving uh, the adoption of what I call local energy. This whole this whole area this is this is quite fascinating to me. I mean, it's um, I, I wonder what it's going to take for the government to uh, uh, to to endorse this sort of thing. I mean, I wonder uh, how long you know can they keep fighting before the fight is over? I mean, there came a point when Uber uh, was trying to take over the taxi business and the taxis and the unions and everybody was fighting and they fought back and they did all these things that tried to push people away. But the, eventually, the will of the people won out, and Uber now is, uh, you know, is a popular thing in cities around America and around the world. Yeah, I wonder how long it's going to take before the utilities uh, fall out of favor and and they start saying, you know what, uh, let's do more though, let's do more of this natural. Uh, thing. I, I, to me, it's it, to me, it's I think the security argument's the strongest of all the arguments. Yeah, you know that uh, that we have to look out for national security. We don't want to buy, uh, you know, anything from foreign countries that we don't get along with. And I mean, I think that there's just all sorts of problems uh, internationally that uh, I think the dollar suffering, you know, there's just all kinds of problems. So uh, what do you think? How long it's going to be? You know, how long you have a prediction? I'd say it's going to happen in the next five years. And uh all it takes, and the reason I, you know, I was a tech CEO for 25 years, uh, took one of my companies public. I mean, 
why in the world would I leave that career to go do the write a book, right? I'm not a book author. Uh, why am I sitting on your podcast today, right? Uh, I'd love it if people bought the book, but if, honestly, they can get a lot of it from my website or listen to my podcast for free. The reason I'm doing this, man, is that there's this huge idea that nobody sees coming. And uh, I want to, if, if two people listen in your podcast and say, holy cow, this is this is a thing. I need to write a letter to my legislator. I need to go attend a public utility commissioner's meeting in, in my state. Um, that's that's what I'm here for. I'm, I'm the, I want to be one of those voices, one of those authors, one of those talkers that gets people to wake up and say, this is this thing's real because no one's saying it. And you probably think I'm crazy. Probably two thirds of the people listening say this guy's off his rocker. No, I, I don't. So, I don't think anybody does. But I, I'm sitting here wondering, uh, you know, is there any money in this for you? Are you positioned to make any money if nope. this thing takes off? Nope. I mean, I'm. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm going to be in business. I've got several startups I'm working on that are going to make money in this because I'm a startup person uh, and I'm an investor. Uh, but I got nothing to sell on this podcast here. If someone wants to buy yeah, a company, no, I, don't, I don't mean that you sell yeah. anything. I mean, I mean, are you positioned to profit from this whole deal? Uh, in the long term, yes. Uh, in the near term, um, uh, I'm pretty conservative, and uh, but I'm I'm a startup guy, and so yes, start. You will see me. I already have one startup which uh, is, is slightly participating in this, and I'm involved with several others. Uh, and in the next five years, you'll see me do twenty, thirty, and uh, both as an investor and helping spin up companies. That's uh, this is enormous, and that's ultimately what I want to have happen. But listen, I didn't do this book to do to make money. I did this book because people need to know what's going on. Uh, and if they read it, they're going to, this isn't like one of these books by Bill Gates, right? Bill Gates writes this book and it's like, oh my God, we're going to die. Climate's going to kill us all. He has all these facts and figures and a large number of them don't even tell you where to learn more, right? There's no citations, no hard math. I have 400 citations in the book. If someone says bullshit, they can go read about it. They can say, listen, you went to the U.S. Joint Tax Commission website, you pulled raw data from it, you put it in a spreadsheet to show me I did the math, they can send me a letter and say, I don't believe you, right? But I want people who are skeptics to read this and say, holy cow, this thing's coming. I need to get involved. I want to start a business. I need to invest. Uh, But let's start a movement, man. It only takes 5%, according to research, 5% of people to start a movement. And we're getting close. Well, listen, you know, the uh, the promise of this show is the inside track. It's uh, strategies that give people and their business is the inside track. And when somebody lives up to the promise of delivering the best, smartest, fastest way to get something done, uh, then we call those people advantage players. And you have lived up to the promise, and that makes you an advantage player. And we really thank you for thank uh, sharing you. your insights, being on the show, uh, telling us what we uh, probably knew, what we certainly need to know and probably don't know. Uh, and I already myself, uh, there's just a bunch of myths that uh, circulate that I've kind of uh, always questioned or wondered about, and you've kind of dispelled a number of those here today. So, Bill, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for being with us, and really appreciate your your time and your energy. Joel, thanks for having me. It's an honor, and uh, hope your uh, listeners get as excited about this as uh, you and I are. Well, listen, I appreciate it. We will. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a huge thanks to our podcast show producer, David Wolf, and the team at Autovita Studios. Profit from the inside wouldn't be possible without these wonderful professionals. To learn more or to find out how you can launch and produce your own podcast show, reach out to www.audivita.com. That's A-U-D-I-V-I-T-A.com. 
Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.